G'day guys, welcome to Wolf Cub Film Club. Dan Thomas here, otherwise known as Cub. And my old man, my dad, my pop, Steve Thomas, is otherwise known as Wolf. It just so happens that not only are we father and son, but we're both filmmakers. So this is a show where we essentially have conversations about what we love, which is films and the filmmaking process. Sometimes we veer off the track a little and share some personal and family anecdotes. Sometimes we just talk about football, but we always bring it back to the focus, which is the films. I also happen to be living on the other side of the world in Germany and dad's at home in Australia. So it's also a really nice opportunity given the distance for us to connect over Zoom and talk about some pretty cool films. On this episode, we're checking out the 2021 doco Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time, which recounts the life of author Kurt Vonnegut and his 25-year friendship with the filmmaker who set out to document it. So enjoy this one, guys. Hit up the candy bar, and I'll see you on the other side. You're recording now. Yeah, that's all good. I have a timer here. It's good to see it visually. So I'm going to start it. And when it's when it's at half an hour, it's it's good to to see a timer visually to try and keep it to the point. Since when did we keep to the point? (laughs) (laughs) It's good to keep an eye on time. Well, are you Um, keeping an eye on it or me? Yeah, yeah, it's right. It's it's right here. So I've I've started it. It's right, right right. Okay. Yeah. So Kurt Vonnegut stuck in time. Um, I I chose this doco not because I, you know, I don't think it's the greatest documentary in the world, but it's interesting from a couple of points of view. One is the pro the filmmaking process. The other is Kurt Vonnegut himself as an artist or a writer and what he went through in his life. But also there are various connections uh, with the era in which he was writing and I was a young man. And there are also connections because of the firebombing of Dresden, connections with the war and you living in Germany and Hamburg was bombed as well, I think. Um, so I thought there were just a number of interesting areas that, that we could discuss. And maybe, maybe be, shall we begin with the filmmaker and move on to the filmmaker's subject? Isn't it called Unstuck in Time? What did I call it? Stuck, Stuck in Time. In time. Oh, yeah. uh, I've got to get this right. And uh, I checked the pronunciation of the filmmaker's name precisely because we did that episode on the Iranian filmmaker and I kept calling him the wrong thing. So the filmmaker, Bob Weide, spelt W-E-I-D-E, and I thought perhaps it was Bob Fide or Bob Weed. but Wade. 
I found him on introducing himself on YouTube as Bob Whitey. So I'm hoping I'm going to get that right. <laughs> Good to know, Whitey. Yeah, yeah. Who, you know, a filmmaker that I, I don't know of, but looking at his CV, he's made a lot of films about um, comedians, comedy, Woody Allen. He produced um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. What do we know about that series? Is that the series uh, with Larry David? Correct. Yeah, I don't. I don't know too much about it, but um, yeah, he got some accolades for that. I th he was a producer, was he? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. Think so. Well, all the, all these projects he were doing, he was doing, is what was keeping him essentially from finishing his thirty year project, which was this film. Oh, well, that's the explanation he gives, isn't it? So for, for the listeners' enlightenment, um, I think he says he was 23 when he started filming Kurt Vonnegut, who was 60 at the time. And he's now 60 himself. So it was more than 30 years uh, in the making this film so i think um it's probably some kind of a record really in terms of gestation time for making a film and interestingly in terms of your comment about other projects preventing him maybe that's true but you know kurt vonnegut died in 2007 and the film didn't come out until 2021. Why, why did he keep filming so long? I think because he formed this friendship with Vonnegut. Vonnegut almost becomes a kind of surrogate father figure to him. So I think he probably didn't want to stop filming because he didn't want the relationship to end. And in my experience, when you the making the film is the raison d'etre of your relationship with the subject. And once the film's finished, it's almost like you've got no reason to continue the relationship. And and so inevitably, I mean, you try and keep it going, but inevitably those relationships fade and you move on to other projects. So I think that too may be an element in with his, obviously, very busy career. I'm sure it wasn't just his responsibility to other projects. I'm sure that wasn't the only factor because he also, he says that, and he said that initially he didn't want the friendship to impact on the film. And then he came to the realization that he didn't want the film to impact on the friendship. So would you say the main theme of the film is this friendship and this re the, re the relationship between the two of them. That's what makes it. Um, that's that's what gives it its warmth. Yes, I wouldn't say it's the main theme of the film because the main theme of the film has to be Kurt Vonnegut, um, but it's certainly present 
all the way through the film. And as you say, it gives it that warmth. I remember reading one review where the reviewer said, we all need a friend like Bob Whitey who will tell our story in such a warm and affectionate way once we're gone. You know, we all need a friend like Bob Whitey. So I think I think that's certainly true. It also, I think, um, what, what do you think about the, the position of the film on Vonnegut. I mean, there's there's no criticism of him. He's not critical of Vonnegut. I thought it was long, but I think it needed to be because you. How do you capture someone's life? Um, and and I mean, it's such a so so many things happened in his life. How do you capture that in a short amount of time? It took took me a while to get to get into it. Um, I think it was, it was fair, particularly in the, in the later part of his life, it showed his, his struggle with the, with, with the page, his, 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 uh, you know, his moodiness about when he had a good writing day or when he didn't, those sort of things. How, how many more skeletons in the closet type stuff? Not too sure. Well, one could say that it's a non-critical review of Vonnegut, but one could also say that perhaps it's a non-judgmental view, which which is good, I think. I mean, he just lays out the story. He doesn't shy away from the fact that once Vonnegut was famous, he left his wife and took up with a young photographer and moved to New York. He doesn't provide that information in a salacious way either. Um, but yeah, he doesn't. It doesn't avoid the difficult aspects of Vonnegut's personality. It's non-judgmental, um, but obviously, obviously, he was he was uh, connected through his friendship. So, as you say, it's a, it's a very affectionate portrait. Because I think the other thing about what well, we're talking about, Bob Whitey is that right at the, not at the beginning, I think about five minutes in, he sits down in front of the camera and he says, I never wanted to be in this film. I never intended to be in this film. I don't like being in my own film. I don't like watching films where the filmmaker's in it, you know, who gives a toss about the filmmaker. And then he says, um, but given the nature of this project and that it's been going on for 40 years that I feel like I have to be transparent about you know the process and so then he sits down and he narrates the film from then on so I thought that was interesting as well and I must say that in in response to your comment that it was a bit long there is a lot of Bob Whitey, not just Bob Whitey, but his wife and footage of him getting married and, you know, good luck to him. You know, he's he's gone to all this trouble to make this film. In a way, it reflects his own life, the chronicle of his own life. So fair enough, kind of put that stuff in there. But it feels to me like he despite his protests, there's a bit too much of um, of Bob and and that would make the film a bit shorter. 
particularly towards the end, I think. I could di divert a little bit just because uh, narration has been a theme in your own filmmaking and it's one of your signature moves, so to speak. Um, but do you think, I think if it's bringing yourself into it serves the story and in, in this case they have this friendship, so it does. I guess it's it's a choice as to how much the filmmaker involves themselves in front of the camera or just just narrating. But the thing with your narration, it always gave it that nice personal touch. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I see every film I make as a personal journey, whatever that film is about. It's my journey into that terrain or those relationships or experiences that I'm exploring. And so it seems to me that if anyone should comment, you know, it should be me. Is it about trusting the filmmaker as well? So if there's a transparency with, with I mean, you, you can present the information or, or, you know, there's like a transparency to the process bringing the filmmaker in or is it just an ego ego well, thing this is this is my film it can it can be either I, I think it's complicated because i think it is about transparency and usually the only the only thing we know about a filmmaking process is what we see in the credits you know who directed it who was the dop etc etc or we might read a review or an interview with the filmmaker which sheds some light on the filmmaking process but I think as a filmmaker, I owe it to the viewer to kind of lay out where this film is coming from so that they can then take that into account and make their own judgments and not just sit there and, and accept everything that's said as fact. You know, that they sit there and go, yeah, all well, I can see this is Steve Thomas's version of fact. So uh, I think it's tricky. Because in a way, you know, we're all prejudiced and we're all biased. And I might say in my film, I'm trying to be transparent. Doesn't mean I am being transparent. I might just be on some, as you say, ego trip. Um, but I think all you know, audiences are intelligent enough to to suss that out. This was a film of uh, smoking photos. Smoking. Did you notice that? Well, he had he, he adds a lot of animation, and including he adds you know animated smoke to photographs. So yeah, I mean everyone in the sixties was smoking, and in every old photo or piece of home movie footage, there are people smoking, and I think that's one of the nice things about the film is that. Whitey's very playful with the material and he's playful with it in a way that kind of uh, reflects Vonnegut's playfulness and humour. I mean, a lot of Vonnegut's humour was pretty black, but um, in the use of the animation, it makes the film quite playful, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a cool device. I'd because it's always like, oh, what, what the heck do you do just with a still photo? Maybe still photo is enough. 
but yeah, they they kept being these photos with with smoke uh, floating off the off the photo. Quite a lot of them. So it's an interesting device. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, um, Bonnegut likes likes when he signs his name i think one of his early books he did because he uses a lot of sketches and stuff and and does it painting as well some of his paintings are seen in the film but he did an early sketch of a kind of an anus uh, an asshole and i don't know if you noticed but in in the um supers for everybody's interview there'd be their name and a description, and then this little star shaped star <laughs> asshole <laughs> um, image I, at the end of I it. I did notice that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think Vonnegut might have appreciated that. Yeah, I think Vonnegut would, and I, and I think it's deliberate <laughs> on why these part. We we describe Vonnegut as a satirist, wouldn't we? satirist yeah one thing he said was that he'd lost interest in truth and has been telling an eight lies ever since because the truth for him in his own life was so brutal in the things that he experienced that was a big statement i thought not telling um lies in a victim in a playful way he just the truth the truth was too harsh and brutal so he moved away from truth and found his own yeah way yeah, in, in terms of fantasy. And a lot of his writing is kind of science fiction, um, humorous, satirical science fiction. And that's included in Slaughterhouse-Five as a kind of um, uh, a way of moderating the awfulness of the story. Billy Pilgrim, the main character, gets taken up by a flying saucer and taken off to a, you know, abducted by aliens. And this is a kind of humorous device that Vonnegut cuts backwards and forwards to during the telling of this awful story of the bombing of Dresden uh, as a way of making it more, not palatable, but readable. Um, so he was a he was essentially a a prisoner of war and sent to to or no he was stationed in Germany and then ended up as a prisoner of war in Dresden. Yes, he was um, conscripted into the American forces and fought in what's known as the Battle of the Bulge, which was a, one of the final battles of World War II, where the Germans were trying to bulge the Allied uh, lines um, and failed in the end. But yes, he was um, captured and imprisoned in Germany, in Dresden, in this what was previously a piggery, a slaughterhouse for pigs, which had been turned into a prisoner of a war camp. And the building he was in was had been called Slaughterhouse 5, and that became the name of the novel. Wasn't, it, wasn't he essentially 
underground when the firebomb happening and happened and then when he emerged the city was obliterated basically so he yeah. stepped out into this flattened city it was it was interesting for me to actually see the the aerial footage of the fire bombing because living here in germany i've i've heard a lot about this fire bombing of particular areas but i didn't know exactly what it was and then when i realized like there's an area just up the road here in hamburg that was completely firebombed i didn't actually realize what that was but it literally is what what it says it's 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 a series of bombs that just cause fires everywhere it just lights the city on fire and so when he emerged it was apocalyptic there were like 500 british bombers and 300 american bombers and over a period of a few hours they dropped 4000 tons of high explosive something like that and, on the city and so in a sense it was like he'd taken the reverse position where he was he felt the weight of the american force um un under underneath this and i guess that's what what triggered his his questions around around war yeah well the city center was completely obliterated 25000 people were civilians were killed and kind of what must have been worse than that was that they were made as prisoners of war to go into the rubble and pull out the dead and pile them up and in slaughterhouse five he talks about another soldier who who literally dry wretched himself to death because he couldn't cope with the smell and the experience of pulling these bodies burnt bodies out of out of the rubble um so talk about a traumatic experience and for that experience as you say to have been the result of his own country's actions would have would have made it you know even worse i think it's conflicting though because the americans obviously were fighting the german uh forces so yeah but i think the bombing yeah. of dresden is still a controversial topic you know so yeah i i'm i'm not i'm not privy on the on the actual that bat what that battle was over yeah um, I, i mean the idea was that there were a lot of factories in dresden contributing to the war effort uh some historians because dresden was a beautiful city it was the florence of germany and it had been untouched through the war up until that the war was almost over the germans were virtually defeated and still they firebombed the florence of germany and raised it to the ground and there are people that argue it was unnecessary but you'll always get those kinds of debates it's definitely not it's definitely not considered the florence of germany now that's for sure whenever i mention it or it's a bit of going there or you know so it's yeah. obviously was impacted yeah. um but yeah so so slaughterhouse five was was even though even though he fictionalized 
a kind of sci-fi thing. It was a cathartic in a way. It was his way of processing that event in some way. Absolutely. And it took him 17 years, according to the documentary, to write that book. He had always said from the very beginning, you know, I'm going to write a, a famous book about the, fire, the bombing of Dresden. But in fact, he wrote, I think, six other novels before he actually completed Slaughterhouse Five. So it was obviously an ongoing kind of project and, yeah, a way of getting out of his system uh, trauma and events he witnessed, which even his own daughters didn't know about until they read the book which I thought was interesting. Is it is it Slaughterhouse-Five with the So It Goes, where it says a hundred times in the novel, So It Goes? Yeah. And this, yeah. this, this, that my interpretation of this statement is that it's a, it's a, it is what it is. It's acceptance. That's, that's the way it goes. So it goes. Yeah. But he, but he really, every, obviously, it's in it a hundred times. So he, he emphasizes these words. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a kind of device. It, a bit like um, that's life. You know, so it goes. What what do you expect? He, he said somewhere that his purpose in writing was. He was always writing about ordinary people trying to be decent in an indecent world. So I think the so it goes is a, is a comment about the world and the kind of lack of control we've got over it. But he found humour as a survival mechanism. Humour was his survival mechanism. And he's, this the footage of him... Uh, speaking publicly, it was almost like stand-up comedy for him. His speeches, so whenever he, he, you know, he has to do it, he's doing a talk about one of his books. It becomes a performance, in a way, um, and also his use of vocabulary and inventing his own words. He's very witty and very funny and very humorous, and he he says somewhere in the doco that. The youngest sibling in a family is always the comedian. Yeah, I remember thought about that. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I think of myself, you know, as the young. Well, I've got a twin, still the youngest of three, and I was the kind of joker in in the family as a kid. I used to enjoy making everybody laugh at the dinner table and so on. And you were the youngest of two and um, the comedian of our family, really. His statement that the only way the youngest can get attention is by being a comedian is an interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. I've become, become really fascinated by comedy in recent recent times and stand-up comedy and this balance between comedy and drama. But, yeah, humour for him as his his way of of uh, getting through it in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's very like um, there's a Werner Herzog film. It's quite old now. I think it was made in the 70s or 80s called Little Dieter Needs, Needs to Fly. 
And it's the story of a pilot who is shot down, I think, in the Vietnam or the um, the Korean War, one of those wars that America fought, and became prisoner of war, was subjected to torture and eventually either escaped or survived. But his his survival mechanism, he, he laughs whenever he's telling a story, he tells the story and then he laughs. And also reminds me of the barber in Shoah, uh, the film about um, the Holocaust. Uh, the barber was a survivor who had to cut the hair of all the women before they went into the gas chamber. And he similar, similarly kind of deflects that story with laughter. And the filmmaker has to say to him, you know, why, why are you laughing all the time? And he says what Vonnegut says. He says, well, if I didn't laugh, I'd have to cry. And Vonnegut, in his usual humorous way, says, you can't cry all the time, you know. So if you laugh, there's less mess to clear up. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's no tears to wipe away. So is it an avoid is it an avoidance of the of the pain though that's the well it's the, it is in a way except he then takes 17 years to write this book which when you strip it back and take away the sci sci-fi fantasy is dealing with that very trauma mm. that he went through and all of his books you know um Slaughter has five, I think I read in the 60s, it was that period when, you know, everybody read Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and Ursula Le Guin. Science fiction was really big and Slaughter has five was quasi kind of science fiction. But I, was... I didn't remember much about it. So I've, I haven't reread it, but I have listened to parts of it you can listen on um, Spotify. There's an album of Kurt Vonnegut reading sections from Slaughterhouse-Five. And he uses interesting techniques like the bombing that you mentioned. The filming, of, the film of the bombing, he describes in the book from back to front. So he talks about the bomb, about the flames contracting the bombs flying up into the air, the planes flying backwards, and the pilots kind of walking backwards into the officer's mess. So he never describes he never describes these events directly as they happen, but he finds ways of describing them which are in some ways more effective. Uh, it's an interesting segment to, to listen to. Also in the book, he talks about um, how afterwards, you know, they were released by the Russians and they'd done all the clearing up of the bodies and he, he was um, going to the station with in a horse and trap that he and another soldier had commandeered and a couple stopped him and said, have you taken any notice of your horse it's made this bleeding it's exhausted 
you know, it doesn't look as though it's been fed for days. And Billy Pilgrim, who's the character, gets off, looks at the horse and cries. And he hasn't cried about the bombing or the bodies or any of that. But when he sees the condition of the horse, he cries. You know? So the book is full of those kinds of ways of, of coming at the thing from different angles rather than head on, which is what he always refused to do or couldn't do because it was so awful, I guess. And so there was a, a zeitgeist at the time in the 60s and a, a, a 60s defiance that this book sort of locked into. Would that be, yeah, the, the, the rising defiance in the 60s and, and, and yeah. that's how it resonated and that was his, his swan song in a way. Yeah, because of the Vietnam War. I mean, the book came out at exactly the time when opposition to the Vietnam War was growing and, and growing. And the, and the point that Vonnegut, and I think he makes it in the documentary, is that wars are generally fought by children. That he was a child, you know, he was 19 when he was conscripted. Whereas people tend to think wars are fought by adults. And it was the same, of course, in Vietnam. And in the First World War, 15, 16-year-olds were signing up. So that was always the thing that he came back to, was the war was yeah, a and, uh, and all his books are anti-war. It's crazy. It's like the, the Aussie kids in Gallipoli and stuff, or the ones on the front line, barely, barely adults. Yeah. I don't know if it's selfish, but I, I probably didn't tap. I, I often don't tap into a film until it becomes relatable. I don't know if that's a selfish thing. Um, it's just my my when it taps into something that's my personal interest. And I, I was really, I'm always interested in the creative process and the writing process. So when it started to get into that and his struggle and the chaos of it and and writing drafts and rewriting and and trying things as as screenplays and then as novels and flipping things and starting again, um, and also like I mentioned earlier, his his mood being affected by by that. Um, I was really quite interested in that stuff, and it, you know the things he said that he he tries to cram everything in as as much as possible and as quickly as possible. And also that he gives away all the secrets on the first page. The, these are kind of breaking away from the from the from the norms or the or the, the the rules, I guess, which is which is interesting. But I think the the message the message in it, which is often common with this this stuff, is was it, it was just about the consistent doing, sitting there every day in this little. Uh, part of the house that was kind of off to the side, um, sitting in there and wrestling with the material day in, day out. That's That was his thing. And I also just could relate to him trying to hold down a steady job, which he couldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, even though... Yeah, even though it was writing, he was writing like publicist-type content writing stuff. It was... It was 
he just could he couldn't do it, no matter how hard he tried. Yeah, and it's interesting watching the grown-up kids talking about how they suffered for, for his art in a way, because as you said, you know, he he was moody. You, they never knew who was going to come out of the writing studio. If he'd had a good day, it would be good news. And if he'd had a bad day, it would be bad news. And I think it indicates that struggle of the artist to keep a balanced life going whilst indulging the need to do the art. It's a hard thing. And you've experienced this yourself, trying to raise a family and be true to your own artistic ambitions, etc. It, it's a tricky balance. I just have noticed for a time with with my son, there was like there wasn't a really a clear division of when I was working or when I wasn't working. And so when I when I got a bit more routine and a bit more structure into what I was doing, it really it's benefited the the family time, um, because my son knows it's not a grey area of is he or isn't he working. It's no, he's done his thing now. He's free and now he's present. Because I think kids just want us to be be present. And uh, yeah, Vonnie kids. So. But his his children there there were three there's, there's a whole nother there's there's a whole nother incident um with that was his the loss of his sister yeah I mean Vonnegut's trauma wasn't confined to his experiences in the war his favorite sister married a guy had four children and he was drowned when a train he was in, I think, went over the edge of a bridge. A bridge. Yeah. The bridge opened. It was one of those drawbridge things, and the train went straight over and he drowned. Meanwhile, his wife, Vonnegut's sister, already had cancer and died within a very short time of her husband dying. And he took in... They have four kids who are all boys and they're grown-up men interviewed in the film. So there's the four boys from his sister's marriage and the two daughters and a son, I think, of his own were all kind of running riot around this house uh, while he was trying to write Slaughterhouse-Five and make a career for himself. With yeah. no having no money, no income. And he said another pretty cool thing, which was that when he's he he would write with somebody in mind. I think that's a that that's really powerful thing. Um, and obviously, he was writing with his sister in in mind. Yeah, somebody makes a comment about that, and then. Uh, Whitey rushes off to his archive because he's half remembers a bit of interview and he's sifting through it and he finds this moment where Vonnegut says to him, I always write or wrote with my 
sister, as if I was talking to my sister. Yeah. So there, there, there are these devices that Wider uses quite well, I think, in the film, which are kind of reflexive moments and make you realise that yeah, he's making a film. It's this. We're not just watching a film, but we're watching the making uh, of a film. Um, and I and I thought that was quite quite interesting because he over if he, he was filming for over thirty years. He must have had a huge. I mean, he was only filming periodically, but he must have had a huge amount of rushes to deal with. It makes me think of some of the other docos we've watched with the archi- that are purely archival footage, a- Amy and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously, I think it'd be pretty ominous having that amount of material to sift through and and do it justice as a Fred. That was his challenge going full circle. That's like probably more so why, why it took so long to um to to finish yeah uh, well just and, uh, as Vonnegut says you know that, that it's not the book that's important it's the struggle it's the journey of the book so it is with the film and you get a sense of the struggle of the filmmaker to put this film together and do justice to the story and to Vonnegut, who is his close friend, and and so on. So there are these parallels between Vonnegut's approach to story and the filmmaker's approach to story as well. Have you have you had your own struggles with finishing projects? And what I mean by struggle is when it comes to the final, you know, final cut or the. Have you found any? friction in those final moments of finishing oh yeah yeah it's because (laughs) well always because into the top of your funnel goes i don't know 60 hours of footage that you've worked hard to get and out of out of the bottom of the funnel squeeze you squeeze a few the equivalent of a few drops 50 minutes or 90 minutes at the most and the struggle to get to that point is always difficult. And the most difficult thing I find about any film or story is the hard thing is the beginning and the end. How to start it and how to finish it. How much you can assume the audience know when you get started because you don't want to have to explain a whole lot of stuff because like you, they'll be bored. They won't be relating to the thing. So how, how do you get into the story quickly, but in a way that the audience can go with it? And how do you end a film? And um, I guess that that's another thing about this film is that it wasn't going to end until Vonnegut died. Because that's the only ending there is, is that we all die. <laughs> you know, and so probably, um, I mean, Whitey was rel- was relatively young when he started filming, 30 years younger than Vonnegut, and he could see Vonnegut getting older and older. 
and probably subconsciously, he just saw, well, we keep going until Vonnegut dies. That's the end of the film. And that's another thing about the film is that although it's playful and appears to be unconventional as a documentary, the structure of the film is actually very conventional. It starts once it gets through the introduction. It goes back to Vonnegut's childhood and comes through in a fairly linear fashion to his death. You know, so it's a, in that sense, it's a fairly conventional film, which Vonnegut's books never were. That's the unstuck in time bit. Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse Five, the opening of the book is Billy Pilgrim is unstuck in time. And the book jumps backwards and forwards in time, uh, seemingly at random, but obviously carefully thought through by, by, the, by the author. But the story is not chronological at all. That's something I, I've been getting my head around at the moment is just, um, yeah, the structure of stuff and whether you can jump around or whether you keep it linear, a story linear or is it is it a space of time with flashbacks within it or is it literally a a to b and yeah essentially it's about the the audience and how are they going to stay in it or or uh is it, it just got off track <laughs> things off off track um one just to comment before when you in terms of getting projects over the line i, I have a have a strong memory of you being in the editing suite the night before you were due for serious uh, heart surgery. So that's I'm that's probably, the length. I'm probably back in the edit suite the day after, was <laughs> I? But I remember after the family, it was quite a pivotal for, moment for me because I, I understood it. I understood that, you know, you were going to have a serious time out and you had to get this thing over the line but we literally for, for your own preparation of what you're about to go through we had to get into the editing suite and drag you out at like 2 a.m or 3 a.m or something um that's a strong yeah a strong memory of mine and 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 i get it i get it yeah and i i, I was i was inspired like to me that was quite motivating to to witness um even though you were supposed to be resting that was how committed you were to the to our project actually i think it was the ilman yeah um, yeah yeah yes yeah. um yeah and although you know i disappear i might disappear off filming for a period short period of a few days or a couple of weeks or something Anne always reckons that the time that I really disappear is into the edits is in the edit suite stage of a film. She, that that's when I I not only physically disappear but I mentally disappear because you're constantly thinking over how do I tell this story and is it working and should I put this before that or get rid of this character or. You know, edit, editing, I think, is um, in some ways the most enjoyable but also the hardest part of, of the filmmaking process. 
if only because the people who are in your film aren't there with you. You know, you're on your own at that stage. Well, you and you and the editor. From my experience so far, it, as a filmmaker, that yeah, the editing has been the most enjoyable. But as a, as an actor, the the shoot the process, I try and let go of actually that because it's depending on my my role or how I'm involved. It's it's out of it's out of my hands once we've done the and the whole. I've seen the whole thing can be completely shaped in a different way, and that's 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 out of my hands in terms of the acting uh, side of things. But when, when it's something I'm cutting, yeah, I've found the, the, the edit really, really enjoyable. Cause you could just, if, if you have enough there, you can shape it in so many ways. Particularly with documentary, you think, you know, the story and you think you filmed the story, but when you get into the edit suite, you find, the story's gone in a different direction or you can't tell that story with the material you've got. So you've got to find the story that the material tells rather than the story that you set out to tell. But to bring it back to Vonnegut and wrap it up. Yep. Um, how, do, how do we wrap up? <laughs> do we wrap up? <laughs> it's a hilarious story he tells in the doco in one of his public speeches where he says, I'm, I'm going to sue Pall Mall, you know, the cigarette oh, that's right, the cigarettes. Yeah, I'm going to sue them. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, because, you know, he's anti-tobacco. And he says, because they promised they would have killed me long ago. <laughs> and it says it on the packet. <laughs> that's right, it says it on the packet. We're going to kill you. And they haven't killed me, and I'm still alive, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna sue them. <laughs> uh, it's a kind of classic uh, Vonnegut. It's inspired me to check out some of his books, which I probably should have read before we did this. But I, it's on my list to definitely, re- especially living here um, in Germany and trying to grasp the, the weight of history here. Um, I definitely read Slaughterhouse Five. I think if a doco sends you down a rabbit hole of the artists work or the subjects work it's done its job yeah it did did remind me a little bit of stories we tell particularly the daughters and the and his kids talking about how they had no idea what he'd been through until they actually read slaughter has five and then they began to realize you know what their own father had been through as you know my own father was invalided out of the army having gone missing during a, an exercise and being found apparently unharmed, but having completely lost his memory. And he was hospitalised with war veterans for six months before he got better and he never did remember what happened to him during this training exercise. And this is a story which my mum never told me until after he was dead, you know. And you go, wow, I wish I could have talked to him about that experience. Um, but of yeah, course, what, what do you, do you, do you think that perhaps it was the trauma of being in the military that just shut him down in a way? He just, they just got married at the, well, again, you know, at the age of 19 or something like that. Um, 
No, age of 21. He was called up, so they got married, and then he was sent off near Bath to do all this training. And, yeah, I, I think he didn't want to, he didn't want to go. Um, I'm not saying he was making up his loss of memory, but I think it was quite possibly psychosomatic. I mean, Grandma had... Uh, three kids and they had a, a delicatessen, a business to run in Bath. And, and I remember grandma when, when granddad had returned incapacitated uh, mentally in a way, you know, she still had to run the business and look after the kids. And, and she would tell this story of, of having to forge his signature to, to access the bank account. Yeah. Well, he, he was never the same after that incident. She's always described him as being having of a nervous disposition after that, and and she had to take the reins. And... So that that was only in it. He was doing a drill. It wasn't. He didn't serve. No, no, he was on training. The outcome of these guys who return, or or in Granddad's case, who 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 don't even serve, it's, it's never good, is it? PS, PTSD no, and, and no, 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 no. It's not. It's never a good thing, one way or the other. I don't think. But I was just going to mention with the stories we tell. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I just read Sarah Polly's book. Oh yeah. Uh, run, run towards the danger, and it does tie in with thematically what we were saying before. Because I read it because it's essentially a series of essays. And there's no connect. There's no A to B thread in terms of time. Every essay is kind of its own thing and jumping back and forth in time and and addressing the same things, but in different essays. She's just directed this other film now, Women Talking. This feature. Oh is, yeah, uh, yeah. So and and I came across her book and it was just, yeah, it was really really cool to read but yeah i was just thinking of that in terms of this structural structural thing um it was interesting yeah so for the benefit of the listener my son put on a timer at the beginning of this and said pop we got to stick to 30 minutes when 30 minutes is up i'll give you the nod and we'll finish how long has it actually been no, we're on an hour. Not trying to cap the time, but just keeping an eye on time, unstuck in time. <laughs> we're we're stuck in the one hour format <laughs> by the sound of it. Like the film, like the film itself, you can't if you need the time, you need you need need the time. And it's a nice way to finish talking about time. Yeah, um, talking about time. What, whatever it needs to unpack it. There's a there's a lot to unpack there. In terms of the extraordinary events that happened in Vonnegut's life, how the film was pieced together over a long period of time, essentially between um, a friendship that developed between filmmaker and subject. And also how Vonnegut's life, how our lives are shaped by our experiences and his experiences were extreme. But nevertheless, all of our lives are shaped by our experience. If I had one key takeaway from it, it would be this power of humour. You know, humour to help us through 
the chaos and absurdity of life. Yeah. Where can the listeners check it out? It's on, um, I, I had it on YouTube, but I had to get a, Australia every, <laughs> it was nowhere in Germany. So I had to get a, uh, often, often there's not stuff released here. So I have, I just have to use a VPN and then go back to, uh, go back to Australia, but it was on YouTube. Uh, did you find it? Where, where did you watch it? I found it through Doc Play, which is an Australian-based streaming service of documentaries. And I'm not sure it's accessible from overseas or not. There's that app, Just Entertainment, which I believe is actually a German app. I think it's called um, Just Watch. Just Watch, sorry, Just Watch, yeah. So people in their own countries could look it up in Just Watch. But when I looked it up, it just gave me Doc Play. So have you managed to track down Cow yet? I haven't, no. <laughs> no. That, but I will. Is that, that our next? Well, it could be. It's. Uh, I heard... I heard somebody mention it on a show somewhere. Somebody said there's a thing, cow, yeah. Well, if you want a film that's completely the other end of the <laughs> filmmaking spectrum to the one we've just discussed, <laughs> cow would be the one to watch. Well, there we go, listeners. That's our, that's our next one installed. But see if you can have a look and then we'll take it from there. Okay. No worries. Okay, mate. guys that was our in-depth look at kurt vonnegut unstuck in time thank you very much for tuning in if you have any questions for dad and i about filmmaking or any of the films we've discussed or film theory anything we'd love to answer your questions you can hit us up at lionfuryproductions at gmail.com and thank you again for your support it's very much appreciated Oh yeah, we're also on the Instagram at Wolf Cub Film Club. Cheerio.